There's another Isaac Watts hymn that ends with, Till moon shall wax and wane no more, and then the sun, that one, Till suns shall rise and set no more. Uh, nice pairing there with that. Uh, love the, the songs and hymns of Isaac Watts for sure. We'll, we'll look tonight at Malachi chapter 4 and the final prophetic word of the Old Testament. And then we'll see uh, that the beginning words, the opening words of the New Testament, not in Matthew, but in Luke chapter 1, uh, but really the opening of the New Testament opens with these same words uh, in the prophetic announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Malachi chapter 4 and uh, reading verses 5 and 6 and then just keep your finger there and let's look at Luke chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. We'll read both in that order and uh, so if you'll look there and then I want to preach to you tonight why fathers matter. Why Fathers Matter, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, and these are the words of God. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Then Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Luke 1, 16 and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we open the word together tonight, I pray that you would give us all a hunger to know what you are saying here, that we would be uh, looking around us to be an encouragement to each other, especially to the fathers here in this room represented here. I pray that fathers especially would take their duty uh, seriously, but Lord, that we would all recognize the, the vital role that fathers play. And in recognizing it, Lord, that we would also see the terrible attack on fatherhood uh, in our nation. I pray that we would push back against it, that we would be fathers to our children and uh, not live up to the cultural expectation of a doofus that is so often tagged on fathers nowadays, but that we would be competent, consistent uh, fathers, uh, that we would be to our children what you designed us to be and that we would matter in their lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Three times... During the life of Jesus, God the Father made a public statement about his son. I know I've spoken about this before, but it bears repeating. Uh, it is one of the things that I think often overlooked in the Bible, uh, but very important for us as fathers. Three times that God the Father made a public statement about his son. He spoke of him first at his baptism, the opening of his ministry. Then he spoke of him on the Mount of Transfiguration to the disciples who were there gathered. And again, during the final week of Christ's life, when Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, as he stood teaching, he said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for, the, but for this cause came I unto this hour. 
Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter suggested that they build three temples, one to Moses, one to Elijah, and one to Jesus. By the way, it's interesting that um, the Catholic Church has built um, their temples up on what they believe is the Mount of Transfiguration. But never mind, I, apparently they missed this message. <clears throat> the Bible says that God spoke once again while he yet spake, Peter, while Peter was speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The very first, though, recorded words of God the Father about his Son. The first time God spoke about his Son. Remember, the birth of his Son was announced by angels. To Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds. The wise men were warned about Herod. Joseph was told to take Jesus to, a, uh, to Egypt. The first time God spoke out about his son, this is what he said at the baptism of Christ. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Three public statements that God the Father made about his son. And from these statements, we can learn some basic principles of fatherhood. A father should be there for his son. Should make his presence felt. And should answer when his son calls. A father should encourage and support his son in tangible ways. A father should express his love for his son and his pleasure in his son. And from the start, God the Father made it known that he thought his son was doing a great job. Maybe your father was not such an encourager. Maybe your father was good at expressing displeasure, but not so great at letting you know when he thought you did a great job. But the example that we should hold up as the standard of fatherhood, righteous fatherhood, is the example of God the Father who expressed his love, his appreciation for his son and let his son know when he had done a good job. Being a father doesn't require perfection it doesn't, certainly doesn't require us to justify our children in their sin. It's tempting for us to say, well, I would say he's done a good job if he did a good job. Or I would, I would acknowledge his, him if he wasn't such a bad son or such a lousy son. But we are called to imitate God the Father in the way we act towards our children. 
And fathers, I just say, having been a father now for lo these few years, I recognize the tendency fathers have to be overly picky and particular when dealing with their own children. Or else, coddling and just letting everything go and ignoring a lot of things that ought to be dealt with. There is not, it's not a choice between overly harsh and overly indulgent here. In order to imitate God the Father towards our children, it requires us simply to value them as people. Value them as the people that God gave to you and your wife to be your children. To be well pleased with them the way that God the Father is well pleased with his son. And please, don't tell me I'd I'd, I'd value them like God the Father valued Jesus if my kids were more like Jesus. Because I'm going to remind you that your kids would be more like Jesus if you were more like God the Father. We're in the same boat, folks. The same boat together. It won't spoil my kids to hear from me, well done. I'm pleased with that. That's good. How does this look on a practical level when you're dealing with, after all, kids that need correction and instruction? I'm not pleased with everything my children do. I I know my kids are sitting here and they have to hear me say this. Shocking, shocking. I'm not pleased with everything that they do, but I am pleased that they're my children. I thank God that they're my children. I thank God that he gave me my children and not yours. (laughs) Not that I don't like your kids. I like all the kids. But I'm just thankful that God gave me the ones he did. Of all the kids in all the world that he could have given me, I'm glad he gave them gave me these kids here. And you should say the same thing. They please me. Even when their misbehavior displeases me, still they please me. When they disappoint me, I don't stop being delighted that they are my children. I correct them because I'm delighted that they're my children. Malachi closes the Old Testament with this prophecy regarding John the Baptist. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, John the Baptist, when the angel announced his birth, the angel announced that this was the fulfillment of Malachi. And John the Baptist knew that as well. The angel who who appeared to Zacharias announced that his son would fulfill this prophecy. Now listen to the difference between what Malachi said and what the angel said in Luke. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And then the angel said to Zacharias regarding John the Baptist, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and rather than say the heart of the children to their fathers, he said, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
So in his ministry, John the Baptist reconciled fathers with their children. This was part of his ministry, his message. Apparently, there was a need for this ministry. I'm sure you can't imagine that. I mean, in our day and age, there are just perfect relationships between fathers and their children, children and their fathers. We see it all around us. I'm being facetious. I'm saying it in my facetious voice here because we have we live in a day much like that day that is wrecked by fatherlessness and children who are angry at their fathers. This prophecy and its fulfillment helps to explain a pressing issue. I'm preaching tonight why fathers matter. The fourth message in this series on the family. I hope that tonight you'll see the importance that fathers play, the important role fathers play in their children's lives. I want to show you that, and I want to show you the role a father plays in his family, why that role matters, and then I want you to see what happens when a father neglects his role and how a father can repent of his neglect. Let's begin with what fathers are for. Why did God make you a father, if you're a father, and why would God make fathers? Richard Phillips makes an interesting comparison between God's purpose for Adam as described in Genesis 2.15, and God's command to fathers, as described in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. In Genesis 2 and verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.15 says, for this purpose, to dress it and keep it. Then in Ephesians 6.4, the Apostle Paul said, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, we looked at that this morning, particularly that word nurture, which is pedia, the idea of um, culture and culturing your children, giving them the culture of the Lord in your home. But let's go back, because God commanded Adam to dress and keep the Garden of Eden, dressing the Garden means that he was to take care of it, to work it, to nurture it, to cultivate it. Literally, he was to serve the garden this way. Keeping the garden means he was to grow the garden and protect it. There are two things that we have to do when we're gardening. You've got to plow up and plant everything, and then you've got to keep that ground in a condition, you've got to water it so that care for it so that the seed will grow. But then when it's growing, you have to protect it from birds and animals and fence it and and keep the bugs off and so on. Keeping the garden means that he has to protect it. So from the beginning, God made men to be providers and protectors. This purpose extends to every part of a man's responsibility in this world, including his role as a father. God wants fathers to provide and to protect, to build and to defend, to bring his children up in the nurture and admonition 
of the Lord. Provision means that you give your children what they need to become mature Christians. That includes, of course, food and shelter, suitable clothing, education, discipline, instruction, training, teaching, morality, character, and culture. Things we spoke of this morning. A father works with his children, nurtures his children, cultivates them, gives them what they need so that they will grow up healthy and strong and wise. That is his job. Now think of your children, if you will, as a miniature Garden of Eden, each one of them a Garden of Eden in embryo, in, in miniature form, and you are the caretaker of that garden. And if you take good care of that garden, and we've all been to visit beautiful gardens, well cared for, uh, and the fruit is beautiful and delicious and wholesome, and this is what we want to produce in our children but it takes, when you see a garden like that, you know it didn't happen accidentally. It took some work. It took labor. And so a father is taking that command that God has given him to have dominion over the garden, to subdue the earth. And in a small way that really isn't small at all, you are given the charge of these little gardens and commanded to build them into mature, fruitful gardens in the end. Provide. Protection means that you defend the fruit of your nurturing so that the world doesn't plunder it. So that you don't do all that labor to produce all that fruit only to have the raiders come in and steal it and take it away. The father carefully teaches his children, guarding their hearts against corrupting influences that could possibly potentially undermine what he has taught. Think of the man who plants an orchard and puts a fence around it in order because he wants the fruit to profit. He doesn't want the fruit to be for the plunderers. He doesn't fence the orchard to keep the fruit in, he fences the orchard to keep the thieves out. He doesn't raise the fruit, of course, for the orchard. He raises it for the market. When the fruit is ripe, he sends it to the market. That's what the fruit is for. And his job is to nurture it, to provide for it so that it can grow to maturity, to protect it so that it goes to its purpose, what it was made to do, what it was made to be. But he doesn't send the fruit until it's ripe and ready. He protects it until then. Now, fathers, this, of course, requires you to oversee the education that your children are receiving, to thoroughly examine what they are being taught and what they understand about what they're being taught. Don't just send them to school and trust the teachers to do it. I think in our school we have some fine teachers who love the Lord and are faithful believers. But still, you know, they might be wrong a time or two. It happens. All of them except, you know, the principal, the superintendent. Everyone else has to, you know, I, I correct them all the time and show them. But, but anyway, yes, I'm being 
facetious I am with that. I'm not wrong all the time, though. Anyway, I, I was waiting for some amens on that, but it's all right. It's okay. I don't, I don't like need it. I'm okay. The same, though, goes for the kinds, and, and this is the thing. You can send your kids to, to Christian school where they're being taught by wonderful Christians and then leave them alone in their bedrooms where they're listening to horrible music or leave them alone with the television or the phone or the computer where they're looking at horrible things that are undoing everything that you've taught them. So the kinds and amounts of pop culture that you allow your children to consume through television or movies or video games or the internet or music or anything else, friends that they spend time with. It would be foolish for you to send your children into a field full of landmines and tell them, here, wait, before you go, take this first aid kit with you in case you hit one. Right? That's not how we do it. A father isn't fulfilling his role as protector if he isn't checking his children's devices and playlists and looking in their bedroom and not just looking like sticking their head in, but looking around to see what's going on. And if they see a glowing light under the door, opening the door to see what in the world is glowing in here. It better not be anything but a nightlight. A thief who breaks into your house is not the most dangerous attacker on your children. Serve your family by providing for them and protecting them. That is what fathers are for. So then why do fathers matter? Because mothers were not made to do these things. I don't say that mothers cannot do these things. Sometimes Mothers, in fact, are more vigilant about these things than what fathers are. Mothers have a natural instinct to raise up the children. She's inclined towards them. She is inclined to teach them and instruct them and to feed them and clothe them. But mothers, by God's design, mothers play a complementary role in the way children are provided for and protected. The weight of responsibility does not rest on their shoulders. God is the master designer. He made our work to fit our frame and he made our frame to fit our work. And I'm quoting here, but as someone said, men don't carry things because they happen to have broad shoulders. They have broad shoulders because God created them to carry things. God made you for that. It's not a bias against women. It's a recognition that God made men and women differently. Our culture has been trying the single mom experiment for generations now. How's that going? Tell me. How's that working out? We keep insisting that men are unnecessary to family. In fact, quite often the argument is made that men are a problem to family. Everywhere we go, we see the damaging results of this notion. No doubt, many good women are capable of providing for and protecting their families. And many, unfortunately, in our day are forced 
to do so. But God did not design ladies for this. He designed men for this work. And when the men don't do their work, don't do their job, things fall apart. They always do. A man needs to provide and protect his children. And he needs to do this for the sake of his own children. Because when fathers fail, children suffer. We looked at that this morning. And the fact that the Israelite men were divorcing their wives in order to, their Jewish wives, in order to have these pagan wives who please them better. And the tears, Malachi spoke of the tears that soaked the altar and caused God to be offended by any offering a man made on that. And it's because the message is very clear that when men abandon, when men betray their wives, the children suffer along with their mothers. They suffer for several reasons. When fathers fail, the children suffer. Let me explain why the children suffer. They suffer because God promised a blessing on obedient children. So when fathers fail in their work, their children suffer because they miss out on the blessing that God promises to the obedient. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. When dad doesn't do his job, the children will be disobedient. And disobedient children won't prosper, miss out on the blessing that God has for them. Disobedience, in fact, brings down the wrath of God upon our children. The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it. Proverbs 30, verse 17. Whoso curseth his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. Proverbs 20 and verse 20. Understand this, dads. There are serious, serious consequences if you don't teach, diligently teach your children to obey their mother. We're warned against stumbling children, but whoso shall offend one of, the, one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. When a father shrugs off his duties, shirks his duties, he throws a stumbling block before his children. He becomes an offense to them. A father who fulfills his role as a father not only loves his God and loves his children, but also loves his nation. God promises blessing on a nation when children honor their parents but promises to smite the earth with a curse when they disobey. Again, Ephesians 6, verses 2 and 3. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. The promise is not just to the individual. It may be well with thee. 
but also to the earth. And the blessing to the earth is that the obedient will live long in it. That's a blessing. Ephesians 6.3 expands the promise God gave Israel in Deuteronomy 5.16. Deuteronomy 5.16, Honor thy father and thy mother as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Ephesians 6 puts a New Testament meaning on this. Not only will the land of Israel be blessed with the flourishing of God's people, but God promises to bless the earth with the longevity and advancement of God's people. This is a blessing to the world. When the, the obedient are blessed and prosper and live long in the earth. God also said something about the damage done to the earth, to the nation, by disobedient and rebellious children. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, our text, what we read a little bit ago. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Listen, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. God says he threatens that if the children's hearts are not turned back to their fathers, if the disobedient are not turned back to the wisdom of the just, that the earth will be cursed as a result. So listen, by teaching your children to obey, you are blessing the world. It's, that's not an overstatement there. God either blesses and prospers a nation or curses and weakens that nation and he does so, he says it here, he does so, as according to the verses that I've shown you here, he does so directly corresponding to the children's obedience or disobedience. We see this all around us today. Children who are disobedient and proud of it. They wear their rebellion as a badge of honor. God is not surprised by this, by the way. He, in fact, told us that it would be so in the last days. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Listen, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. God knew what he was speaking of. How did we get here? How did we get to this place where rebellion is a badge of honor, where children boast about disobedience, where the idea of obeying your parents is smirked at, ridiculed, laughed at? You know, all the, all the movies, all the TV shows, always, if there's a dad, he's always an idiot. He's always in the way. He's always underfoot. Right? Mom and the kids just have to kind of fend for themselves and work around dad who's like a younger version of Joe Biden. Right? And this is the way it is these days. Right? This is the way we look at it. How did we get here? 
I'll tell you where disobedient children come from. They come from disobedient fathers. Fathers who don't obey the Lord towards their children. And raise them up the way God said to raise them up. Fathers matter because God made you especially to do this job. He equipped you to teach obedience to your children and to raise them up to honor their father and their mother so that the land might be blessed. So what are the results of this neglect? Our text says, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Ephesians 6 promises blessing, not only on our children, but also on the land itself. The curse on our nation is largely the result of absent fathers. And these fatherless times actually reveal our attitude towards God the Father. Rebellion towards God has turned fathers away from their duties. It's turned their hearts away from their children. The, the, the rebellion of fathers towards their duty, their role as a father is directly traceable to our rebellion towards God himself. The reason that we don't fill the place in our children's lives that we were made to fill is because we don't like to be in submission to God the Father. We've turned idols, and that's why we reject our duties as fathers. We are broken. Our culture is broken. Family values are broken. But in the midst of all this brokenness, a curious thing has happened. It's not uncommon. It is kind of the way of sinners, if you will. Somebody does something they know they shouldn't do, but they do it anyway. And then they come to the place where they love it. They defend it. They say it makes me a better person because I do this. And with all of our brokenness and all of our fatherlessness in this day and age, we still have this conceit that we are good fathers. We have this disconnect, these blinders that keep us from seeing the true cause of our cultural train wreck. We stop caring what a father is for. We don't really, I mean, it doesn't really matter. We stop trying to be a biblical father. And we think that has nothing to do with the problem. We think the problem is the conservatives. You know, we think the problem is all those nutcake religious people. When the truth is, long before the world became broken, what broke down first was our understanding of fatherhood. In this day and age, fatherhood and masculinity have taken on strange new meanings. Nobody forced these strange new meanings on the church. In fact, I would argue that these strange new meanings have come from the church. For too long, our churches have tolerated effeminacy in men. In fact, I would go farther than that and say it's not just a matter of tolerance. We have emasculated our men, stripped them away of their masculinity. God-given masculinity. It starts in Sunday school classes where we expect the boys to sit like little girls with their 
hands folded in their lap and their knees together and use their soft voice. And we don't encourage them to express themselves the way a young man is inclined to. It probably started before that, maybe back when we started dressing our little boys in onesies. I don't know, daddy wearing his pink shirt like a cupcake or something like that. We have invented a softer, softer, gentler masculinity that really isn't masculinity at all. We've honed our skill of getting in touch with our feminine side. You know, we don't think anymore. We feel. We say it that way. Well, I just feel this way. I just feel that this is not nice. I just feel that we could say this in a better way. We emote. We swoon. We lost our appetite for hard truths. Today we want instead preachers who massage our feelings, who give us back rubs and then give us a little nudge out into the world. The men in churches today, effeminate, emasculated. And the truth be told, what's happening in our churches is that Sister Busybody with her hairy arms is the one who actually runs the church. And everybody kowtows to her. And as a result of this, our view of fatherhood ranges anywhere from the stallion at the stud farm to the stay-at-home dad, complete with, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, apron in one hand and bottle of diaper cream in the other. And real men, you know, change diapers. That's what we're told here. And why would this be a discussion here? Now, I'm not going to preach... For doctrines, the commandments of men. I'm not going to say that real men shouldn't change diapers. I'm saying that this really shouldn't be a part of our discussion right here. But today it's become almost like a mark of you're a real man. If you openly like tell everybody that you're going to change the diaper. That this is going to be my job right here. This is where we're at today. We've come to where we feel that we have to prove our manliness By doing feminine things. Now I I am not arguing. I have changed diapers. I'm not arguing that a man should not help his wife when she needs help. There have been times when, you know, my wife only has two hands. And there were more than that um, going on in that moment. But I'm telling you, I didn't spend a lot of time doing it. And this is, this is again, like it's become a proof, like a man has to prove that he has a tender touch because he does these things. And it's all upside down and it's all backwards here. <clears throat> We've come to believe that fatherhood looks a lot like motherhood. The difference is almost imperceptible. So we shouldn't be surprised by the sudden rise of gender confusion. You know, Heather had two mommies long before we embraced lesbianism. The brokenness of our culture came out of the breakdown of our understanding of fatherhood. We can point to a number of markers of our brokenness. Rising atheism has produced an inability to trust the Lord. It's not just a refusal to, but we can't trust the Lord. Rampant idolatry has produced an obsession with devices and gadgets and technology. We 
Everything is mediated through these things that we're comfortable with. Growing poverty, economically, culturally, spiritual poverty. Increasing crime. Generational decline. Because we learn to be fathers from our fathers. And the number of fathers today who were raised without fathers has increased exponentially. It would be a whole sermon in each one of these to flesh out each of these markers of brokenness in our culture. But every one of them trace back to fatherlessness. When men abandon their roles or just just leave it vacant, just don't show up. Everything breaks down. And as I said, we're we're surrounded by this. It's all around us. You know, you go as I just did to Israel and you see lots of ruins everywhere. We're touring all the ruins everywhere. I feel like we're living among the ruins of our once great culture here in America. Our largest cities have become laboratories for the study of the effect of fatherlessness. American culture has become a modern ghetto. We see the same thing happening in the church where fathers are distant or absent, uninterested, uninvolved, disengaged from their families. Or we have the other extreme where fathers are overly engaged and they're harsh and unforgiving. Or we have that squishy middle where dads coddle and indulge their children. Too many Christian kids raised in Christian schools and Christian churches have left the faith. I don't think that there's one thing that the blame tacks on to. But ultimately, fathers bear the responsibility. Fathers do. If we'll fulfill our God-assigned roles to provide and protect, we'll see our children grow up into the kind of faithful children that God wants them to be. The angel promised that John the Baptist would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. But in order for this to happen, God must turn the heart of the fathers to the children. And so let's talk here about how we repent. We're not told how John the Baptist fulfilled his ministry of turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the heart of the children to their fathers. What we are told is that when John the Baptist preached, he preached repentance. We can assume that the repentance involved fathers turning back to their duty as fathers. But how does that happen? How do fathers do that? The easy answer would be just simply orient yourself to your children once again. Turn back to them. But 
Jesus, when he described his disciples, his followers, said something that we're a little uncomfortable with. Because Jesus said that if you don't hate your father and your mother and your wife and your sons and daughters and your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. So this might seem all backwards here. But if we're going to turn back to our children, the first thing we have to do is turn away from them in order to turn to God. Turn to God. Jesus taught us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, he said, shall be added unto you. So repentance begins with a wholehearted turn to God the Father through Jesus Christ, seeking him. The result, when we repent, when we seek the Lord with our whole heart, the result will be a wholehearted return, not to our children, but to our duty as fathers, which means loving our children, embracing them, protecting, providing and protecting. <clears throat> what will this look like? Ultimately, on a practical, the most practical level, the difference will be that dad will now be attentive, present, Involved, but not involved in such a way that makes their children feel like they're hunted, like they're the prey. Remember God the Father at Christ's baptism? He was present there. It's, it's, it's important to note that he was present for his son's baptism. He made his presence felt. He made his presence known. And when he spoke, he expressed both his love for his son and his pleasure in his son. So, Dad, what would be wrong with telling your kids, I love you? What would be wrong with telling them what pleases you about them? Do your kids know what pleases you? about them. What kind of false masculinity has told us that a dad should never say I love you to his kids? What would be wrong with you telling your kids how delighted you are that they're your kids? Of all the kids God could have given me, I'm glad he gave me you. Why wouldn't you tell them that you're pleased with them and even why? Why wouldn't you say to them, well done? Is this not an important part? Now, certainly you can do all of that and your heart still not be turned to your children. You still not be engaged with them. But certainly saying these kinds of things for dads... You know, and I know that our generation is not as bad about this as former previous generations where words of affection were never expressed to the kids. 
That was a mistake, a big mistake. Let me give you a small list of big things that ought to characterize our work as fathers. I'll list them and uh, trust that the Holy Spirit will drive the nails as needed. John the Baptist preached repentance. Repent ye, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know from Malachi that the angel's word to Zacharias that this repentance had mainly to do with the relationship between fathers and their children. So the repentance that John the Baptist was preaching was mainly concerned with the relationship between fathers and their children. When God turns our hearts back to our children, we can expect some changes will be made. Fathers will carefully communicate a love for God's standard to their children. They will love God's law in front of their children and teach them, encourage them to love God's law along with them. They will use their authority to bless their children, to protect their children. They will discipline their children into discipleship. They will make them faithful to the Lord by consistent encouragement and correction and instruction. And all the while, fathers will be very careful about being sure that they are right with God themselves so that they are setting a right godly example in front of their children. It won't be necessary for a father to say to his children, I've been, I've been out of sorts with God and now I'm right with him. Because his children will see the difference. And when he says it, they'll believe him. I want to leave you then with a warning, something I read from another pastor that I think is very helpful. Fathers must guard against these four temptations. Number one, temptation number one, the impotent feeling that I am helpless. There is a great temptation that fathers have to feel impotent and helpless. You say, my kids are a mess. My family is a mess. You know, you've got adult children are a mess. You can do something about it. You can. For starters, you can repent of your own neglect and slack handedness. Get on your knees, confess your own sins and failures to God as if they really are sins. That have done unspeakable damage in the life of your children. You can do that. Include among the damages rebellious spirits, defiance, resistance to authority. Then, when you have confessed it to the Lord and taken responsibility for it, get up off your knees and do something about it. Sit your children down. Tell them, I've dealt with you with a slack hand. And this is what I'm going to do to correct it. When my kids were young. Those corrections often included a renewed emphasis on consistent spanking. As my kids have grown older, I found other ways to teach and reinforce faithfulness to the Lord. 
The point is, God has given us the tools. We are not helpless. One need only uh, consult the owner's manual. The second temptation that we should guard against is the temptation to believe that indulgence is grace. America has been Oprah-fied for a long time. And so, as a result, we've come to believe that any problem can be fixed with a hug. But just loving on the kids doesn't fix the rebellion in their hearts. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from them. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee hope, give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Pastors have noticed two kinds of daughters who get into trouble. The first is the daughter who has an obviously antagonistic relationship with her dad. The second is less obvious and probably a little confusing to us. The daughter who will say that her dad is such a sweetie pie. My dad and I are really close, she says. What she means is, he's a pushover. I can do anything I want. I can get anything I want. Our children need limits. And fathers have to set those limits. I would remind you that when God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there was one tree in that garden that was off limits. God gives limits, and we should too. Now, as I've said, we shouldn't set up a garden of no with that elusive tree of yes that keeps moving every time you get close to it, right? But a more common mistake is the mistake of setting up a garden of yes, 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 yes. Everywhere, yes. Third temptation that we've got to guard against is the temptation to a prideful desire to save face. This plays out in countless ways, but one of the most common is for dad to offer lame excuses when his kids misbehave. Dad tells his son to do something, his son just ignores him, which is evidently his son regularly ignores him. His dad dad just ignores his son ignoring him. And then later on, because dad knows he's got to say something, he makes an excuse for it. You know, he was up late last night. He's really tired. He didn't hear me. Obviously, he didn't hear me. The other most common response is for dad to make a big show, flurry and bluster about his son's disobedience, promising when we get home, you're in trouble, buddy. But buddy boy knows that dad doesn't mean that. When I get home, dad is going to forget about it. When our kids were little, I told my wife, we're never going to say to them in public, You're in trouble when you get home. Because I didn't want to forget. I remember my dad forgetting a number of times. I remember hoping the whole way home that my dad would forget. I tried to be really quiet in the back. That didn't work at all. 
So then I tried to just be chatty like nothing had happened. That worked often. I figured it out. So I said to my wife, we're not going to say that. If they do something that they should be in trouble for, mark it down when they get home, we'll take them and take care of it. I didn't want to make promises and not keep those promises. And I never, and we should never, do it for show. I, you know, I remember, and well-meaning, and people do care about you, and you should honor that. But they would say, you know, like, well, you're not disciplining him right now. Yeah, well, we're in the middle of the restaurant. I'm not going to spank him in the middle of the restaurant. Uh, you know, I, maybe you think I should, but I'm not going to. I'd take him out to the car. And one time we were out to eat with a couple, and I took one of the kids out to the car for a spanking. And as I left, the lady said to my wife, he thinks he won. And my wife said, but he didn't. He might have thought it for a minute, but, uh, you know, his, um, I snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory right there. All right? Don't do it for show. Don't do it for show. Don't discipline your kids for show. <clears throat> or dad deals with it in public, but lets it go in private. Each response that I've described here damages our kids. Pride always brings destruction. And finally, the fourth um, temptation to guard against is the mistaken belief that loving God's law means that we have to be our children's adversary, making us overly harsh and severe. Like my kids are all wicked sinners and I'm going to be their adversary till they become my friend. Remember that garden of yes with the tree of no that God gave to Adam and Eve? You should have that in your home. There should be far more things that they can do than things that they can't. Far more things that they can enjoy than rules that you have to restrict them. If you only instruct and correct but never play with your kids or listen to them or read with them or enjoy them, just take pleasure in them, you will create an adversary. Pranks never motivate cheerful compliance. Remember this. When God gave the law, he never gave it as a means of dealing with sin. I think it was Spurgeon that pointed out, and I can't quote it exactly, but, um, but pointed out that the law, when it comes along, the law tells us what we're to do, condemns us for not doing it, but never offers a hand up, never offers any help. The law never offers any help at all, only condemnation. The law exposes sin. Quite often, the law, in fact, provokes sin. Think about the forbidden fruit, right? Now, we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Only grace can deal with sin. Only grace. Gracious fathers lead their sons through the minefield of sin. 
indulgent fathers watch their sons wander off into the minefield. Legal fathers chase their sons into the minefield. Remember that. Listen, it is not the end of the world if your kids do something really bad. It's not the end of the world. Sometimes parents get, but understand, you're raising sons, that's almost a guarantee that they're going to look at something that they shouldn't, and they're going to want to. That is guaranteed. They're going to try to when they get the opportunity. And sometimes mothers just lose their mind, like, oh, he's a pervert. No, he's a sinner. He's a sinner who happens to have natural desires that Satan twists and perverts. And dads, I'll tell you, if you want to destroy your son immediately, just act like he just tried to assassinate the president. Do that. Act like you're the Secret Service trying to tackle would-be assassin, and you'll destroy him. Because with your sons, you correct it, yes, but you help them. They're weak. They're weak. They don't know how to handle their hormones and their desires and so on. And so you step in and you help them and you guide them and you teach them and you instruct them. Now, if they keep going back to it, that's a different matter. But we have to recognize our children's frame and remember that they are dust. One final point. Having heard all of this, there are some who might say, I'd just rather turn in my daddy card. I don't need that anymore. But you can't. You can't. You know the old sign, I, I smile because you're my sister. I laugh because you can't do anything about it. That can apply also if you're a dad, all right? And I smile. Your kids could say, I smile because you're my dad. I laugh because you can't do anything about it. You're my dad. When you're, my, when you're the dad, you're the dad. You don't get out of that. And who is sufficient for these things? But James gives us timeless counsel. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him.